pre-Easter message this morning, and I just want to share with you uh, from the, the scripture of Luke chapter 24. In fact, I'm calling this message this morning a radical restoration. A radical restoration. In fact, our scripture is in Luke 24, verse 35. Then two men from Emmaus told their story how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking bread. Great scripture. Two men who lived in a little town called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They decided to go back home after being in Jerusalem and witnessing the horrible and violent and brutal crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They were devastated. They, these two guys were faithful followers of Jesus Christ. They were firm believers in the ministry of Jesus, and they were deeply, deeply broken by the sudden death of Christ. And the whole context of our text this morning is all about the Christian experience that we walk through in our life. There are many things that disturb us and disrupt our relationship with God. There are hard problems and tragedies that hit us in life, that trip us up, that are unexplainable tragedies, that, that sets us back, which seems to defy our ideas and our hope of what we expect from the Christian life. Sometimes when we get saved, we have this idea that, that life is a, is a flowery a train ride into heaven. Sometimes we expect that things ought to go great and smooth always for us, but the Bible teaches us that the rain falls on the just, the saved, as well as the unsaved. Have you ever noticed that some of the saddest words in our language begin with the letter D? For example, D for disappointment or doubt disillusionment, defeat, despair, and death. Our text this morning deals with these two men who decided to go home the very day that Jesus Christ arose from the grave. They were there Friday for the crucifixion. They were shattered in a million pieces. They were there Saturday, and they were there Sunday and they decided that they had lost their leader. It was time to go home. They even got word that Jesus Christ, his body, was taken from the grave. Or the word was that he arose from the grave. But they were so smitten with grief that they weren't even able to comprehend the reality of the true resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our text this morning deals with the tragedy of these two guys. The sudden death of Jesus was so disrupted that these men literally walked away, derailed from their faith. And I have found that in my own personal life, there are some heartaches that hit us so hard. It has a tendency to cause us to lose our spiritual bearings, to lose our spiritual orientation. And there are times that we can get knocked down and we begin to digress spiritually. And we can begin to walk away from what we have believed in our life. The walk of retreat, seven miles from Jerusalem back to their hometown called Emmaus. It was a long, painful, discouraging trip. In fact, this walk could have been a seven-mile walk of defeat and disillusionment and despair. 
And it's interesting that the distance from this small town of, of Emmaus from Jerusalem was exactly seven miles. And, and if you ever study the numbers in the Bible, it is a number of perfection and completion. So in just seven miles, Jesus noticed notices two of his faithful followers. They were not disciples of the Lord, but they were devout, loyal followers of Christ. And Jesus noticed these these guys as they're leaving Jerusalem, they're shattered in a million pieces. Jesus has already arose from the dead. They're brokenhearted. They are, everything has been squashed in their spirit. And they're walking this broken road. And Jesus approaches these devastated two guys, and he begins to complete his work of restoration in their life. Now, I like this story in the Bible because it reveals God's pattern of how he radically restores us when we begin to walk away from his presence or when we've been hit with something so hard that it shakes us to the core and we begin to lose faith. Now, in this text, I find three steps how God restores us. I love this story because I believe there's something there for all of us this morning. The first step is God restores us with his unseen presence. He restores us with his unseen presence. Look with me in Luke 24, 15, and 16. And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus, I like this, Jesus himself, suddenly came and began walking with them, but God kept them from recognizing him. You see, Jesus wanted the power of his presence to restore them. We can never underestimate the effectiveness and the comfort and the help of the presence of Jesus Christ in our life. Even though we can identify and see him in the physical sense, the Bible teaches that he is always with us. He will always walk by our side, and he always lifts us. The Bible says Jesus himself drew near to these men who began to lose faith. He didn't send an angel, but rather he sent himself. Whether we're aware of it or not, our darkest moments, Jesus draws near to us when our hopes are dashed. He comes as an unseen traveler in our life. He desires to come by our side quietly. He listens to the cry of our heart. He sits by our side. He listens to our sighs. He he stands behind us. He walks out in front of us. He walks before us. He surrounds us during pains of heartache and sorrow and devastation. He draws near to us because he cares about what we feel. Jesus cares about what we experience. He cares about what breaks our heart, and he comes close to us. He comes and he walks with us. He doesn't want us to walk alone. His presence alone brings restoration. There's something comforting to know that although we cannot see him physically, He comes as an unseen traveler by our side. Our eyes are kept from seeing him, but he is here, and he is here this morning. Look to your neighbor and say, he's by my side. Can you do that? He's by my side. I like what the Bible says, Jesus himself. And then I like the next word. It says, suddenly came 
and began walking with them. They had a past with Jesus. They had followed Jesus from every little village and every town as Jesus taught the gospel, as Jesus shared about the kingdom of God. And they had a past with him. They had great memories of Jesus. But now, after the calamity of the cross, they thought that they were left alone. They thought they were left alone to suffer. In verse 17 and 19, we read how these two followers spoke of Jesus in the past tense. They're walking on this road, and they're talking about Jesus and about what they had just experienced. Jesus comes alongside of them, and this is what he hears them say. And he asks them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk alone? And they stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. Jesus, being very interrogating, he said, what things? The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of all the people. You see, to these guys, the cross had taken Jesus from them. They couldn't find any meaning or purpose of the crucifixion. They couldn't find peace or they couldn't adjust to this abrupt calamity. The cross was nothing more than a great negative to them. They were devastated. They couldn't understand. All of us had many, many great memories of what Jesus has done for us in the past. But what about the present? The past is history. They had a great negative in front of them. So many times God allows things to come into our life and we can't figure them out and we can't understand why God does what he does. But sometimes it takes an element of faith to say, God, I don't understand tomorrow. I don't understand why you have injected yourself into our lives and you've allowed things to happen. But God has a plan and a purpose. And he uses everything for his good. He brings everything for his glory. God loves us, and he never makes a mistake. Do you believe that this morning? The question should always be, is Jesus a present bright reality to us today? Can we recognize him beside this morning by faith? I have found that life has many distractions, sorrow, stress, disappointments, which can grind us down that we carry on mechanically, never lifting our eyes or minds from the dust of the earthly roads that we travel. Many times we are discouraged because we don't understand and we can't find a purpose for the pain that we're experiencing in life. And we become unaware of the glory and the strength of his presence within us. It was about a couple years ago, my wife and I went through a very painful experience went through a very dark time. And I remember laying in bed that night, tossing and turning, and just, you know, hurting emotionally, mentally, and just thinking through and wondering what God was doing in my life, in our life, and our family's life. And I remember I got up in the middle of the night, and I just felt that the only escape from this misery, the only escape from this pain was to get into the presence of the Lord. 
And I remember it was about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I went into where my recliner was, and I, I just got on my knees, and I just said, Lord, I need you. I just need your presence. Now, I know in my heart, mentally, that the Lord never leaves us. But I needed something more than just knowing, just knowing factually, biblically that he was there. I needed the power of his presence. And I remember it was about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I said, Lord, I need more from you than just the Bible verse to know that you never leave us or forsake us. Lord, I need to know that you're here in this room. And I'll never forget, as I was praying, it was almost like a hand. The pressure of a hand was on the top of my head. In fact, I looked to my left immediately while I was praying because I thought maybe it was my wife or somebody put their hand on my head, but I realized then it was the nail-scarred hand of Jesus. And I can never forget the warmth, the peace, and the comfort that the Lord gave me. It was almost like Jesus came into that room and wrapped his arms around me and just said, peace be still. It's almost like he said to me, Tim, you don't have to know all the facts. You don't have to know all the ins and outs of what I'm doing. But know this, that I'm going to produce everything that is good and wonderful in your life. And I've got everything under control. I'll never forget that as long as I live. In fact, since that experience, every day I pray, I say, Lord, I need the power of your presence in my life. My friend, the most wonderful thing about it is you don't have to walk that dusty road all by yourself. You don't have to bear all the burdens yourself, but rather you need to become keenly aware that you have an unseen traveler with you in life that cares about you, that he himself will lay his nail-scarred hand upon your head and transfer into your soul and spirit his peace, his comfort, his strength. That's what Jesus did for these men. Life loses its meaning and leaves us washed out. But the story of God's presence gives us hope. Scripture provides endless examples of how the presence of the Lord empowers his people to live through hardships. One of the, one of the most powerful examples is the life of Moses. Moses lived a very tumultuous life. I mean, it was painful. He went through trial after trial, hardship after trial. And Moses was convinced that without the presence of God in his life, that life was useless for him to attempt anything. And when he spoke face to face with the Lord, he was saying, Lord, if you're not with us, we're not going to make it. We won't even take a single step unless we are assured of your presence. There was another man, Abraham, who also had a very difficult life. Even the heathen king around him recognized the difference between their lives and his life. The heathen king, Elimelech, said to him, there's something different about you. There's something different about, different about the presence of someone near you. God, this is what he said, God is with you wherever you go. Gideon also was a man who was a coward. He didn't have much in life, scared of everything. And God came to Gideon one day and said, I want you to go and protect the nation of Israel. And I want you to be the leader of a great army. And he said, the Lord is going to be with you. 
thou mighty man of valor. Go in this thy might and go save the nation of Israel. God is saying, Gideon, there's a might in you so powerful that it can save Israel. And that might is my might. And that is my presence. God told Isaiah the same thing. He made a special promise that he made because of his love for him. God said to Isaiah, fear not when thou passest through the waters. I will be with thee. Through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God. I have loved thee. Fear not, for I am with thee. Jesus is still here. The first step of God's restoration in our life is the fact that no matter what you're going through, no matter how you're hemorrhaging in the spirit, in the soul this morning, the fact of the matter is God loves you and he will come alongside of you. And even though you cannot recognize him, you cannot identify him physically, he is here, he is walking by your side, and he's ready to comfort you. And then the second the second pattern of God's blessing of restoration, and that is God restores us with his, with his loving patience. I like what verse 21 says in Luke 24. These two guys, they were speaking out of a lack of faith. They said, we had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. We had hoped he was the Messiah even though our faith has been beaten down and our hope in Christ has weaned or weakened, the Lord is still lovingly patient and kind with us. I have found that in my own personal life, nothing plagues or withers the soul and spirit of a man more than the vice or the spirit of unbelief. Everything unravels when the spirit of unbelief begins to take root in our life. Faith was ripped away in the, in, the, in the life of a man whose son was demon-possessed. There's a story in Mark chapter 9 that he brings his son, and, and this demon had taken his soul and spirit, and this man comes crying in a panic to Jesus. And he cries out, and he said, Oh, Lord, help me. And Jesus looked at this poor man. He says, If you have faith to believe, then I can do all things. And I like what this man said. Straightway, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, but Lord, help thou my unbelief. Oh, how human in him. We have faith to know in our hearts and our heads that God can do great and mighty things. But when we're bleeding emotionally and when we're hurt in a time of difficulty, it's so human of us to doubt and to have a spirit of unbelief. These guys, as they're walking, Jesus comes alongside of them. Jesus doesn't reveal who he is to them. He hides his identity. And as he's discussing the things that have happened to them in Jerusalem. These guys pipe up and basically say, oh, we had hoped that he was our Messiah. They had lost faith. They couldn't grasp the truth. This Jesus who they walked with, who raised men from the dead, 
who healed the cripples, the man who opened up the ears of the deaf, opened up the eyes of the blind, this man who came with great words about the kingdom of God, this man now was crushed under the iron heel of Roman. It just seemed like Satan had greater power than this man of Jesus. There's no way possibly this man could be God because he was crucified. They didn't understand. They couldn't comprehend. And their faith was diminished. But it's interesting. As Jesus comes alongside of them, he could have rebuked them. With a loud clap of thunder, he could have revealed himself and said, I am the risen Christ. But no, he didn't do that. When he spoke to them about their lack of hope or faith, he began to comfort them with his patience. The master they had revered, loved, and followed had been horribly put to death, a cruel death by the most degrading kind. Death by crucifixion was the most shameful of all deaths. The victim was made a public spectacle and exposed to all the jeers of those that passed by. And now these guys, their hopes were dashed. The dream was over. They were leaderless. And now they were falling apart. And now they begin to be filled with unbelief. It's interesting how unbelief can really assassinate our faith. My wife was telling me one time, we were going through a dark time, and she shared something with me, and I'm so glad she did. She says, you know, Tim, I was on my way to church. And she said, it was almost like I heard an audible voice in my car. And she said, I know it wasn't God, but this, this voice said, what if the Bible is not true? What if God doesn't really exist? And she said, I shuddered when I heard that. And I thanked her for being honest and sharing that with me because I can't tell you the times that even while I've been preaching, Satan has spoken to me and said, they don't care about you. They don't care about God's word. There's been times that I've been visiting people and Satan has come and spoken words of doubt and unbelief. There have been times I've been standing in the midst of families that the most horrific events have taken place and Satan has said to me, what are you going to say? You're going to tell him about God? Do you think God will help? Do you think the Bible, that dusty old book, there are times that Satan has tried to tell me and tried to invoke in my spirit a spirit of unbelief. And I've had to tell the devil, get you behind me, you old dirty rotten slew foot. <laughs> Jesus came aside of these men. I love this about Jesus. He's patient. He doesn't yell out, you ought to be ashamed of yourself for not having faith. Why don't you believe me? I've done great things for you yesterday. Why can't you believe? God never did that. His loving patience. I think sometimes preachers need to be honest with their congregation and let them know 
that sometimes the voice of the devil and the voice of the world, the voice of doubt, the spirit of unbelief is all part of our sinful nature and it rises up within us. And you need to know that that's part of the humanness of all of us. But I got one great thing to tell you. God trumps it all. Amen. Those are the times that you need to quote the word of God. Those are the times that you need to lean into the work of the Holy Spirit. The two despondent disciples summed it up very neatly. They said, we had hoped that he was the Messiah Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. You see, I have found that human hope is a fragile thing when it withers. It's difficult to revive. Hopelessness as a disease of the human spirit is desperately hard to cure. When you see someone you love and care for overtaken by a painful circumstance or illness or situation which goes on and on, despair can set in and it's almost impossible to recover. In fact, these two guys, as they were going back home, after hearing uh, the fact that even someone stole the body of Jesus and they probably thought to, to themselves, really? They massacred his body and now someone stole his body and someone's coming up with some tale that he arose from the grave and they thought, we can't deal with this anymore. Let's go home. We have nothing. And they erected a wall of hopelessness around them. They were trapped in their misery. And they were telling this stranger who was really Jesus and they said, oh, we had hoped that he was the Messiah. We would have Hope that he would have delivered us from the tyranny of Rome. We don't expect it now, but once we did, we had it, that this thing called hope, but it's now gone. And our spirit has been flattened. Jesus restores us by gently walking quietly by our side. He listens to our sorrow and our troubles And Jesus asked them kindly, what are you guys talking about? What are you discussing? And these guys poured out their sad story to someone who seemed so willing to listen. How wonderfully kind and compassionate is our Lord. He could have scolded them, made them feel guilty for their lack of faith in him. But no, Jesus doesn't berate them, but rather, as someone put it in moving words, I like this. In his infinite courtesy, Jesus remembered the frailty of overstrained nerves and bewildered minds and came not too suddenly or overwhelmingly upon them, but in a way which he alone could do, revealed himself softly as the risen Christ. The way that Jesus dealt with the situation is a lesson to all of us in a position to help others who've lost hope. They just need a companion. They needed a catharsis. They needed someone to talk to. They needed a listening ear before a stream of good advice followed. The last thing they needed was a brisk, hey, cheer up, God's on the throne, or snap out of it, don't be downhearted, don't be discouraged. You're a Christian. You ought to know better than that. Let's love them by listening, by accepting what it is that they feel. And there will always be time that we can point them to the one who heals all of our circumstances. Jesus not only restores, 
with his presence, unseen presence. But Jesus restores us with his loving patience. And then thirdly, God restores with the power of his word, with the power of truth. It's interesting, after Jesus heard these guys out, he heard their story. They were talking about the awful deeds of the crucifixion, and Jesus listened. He just asked questions. And these guys, after they finished, Jesus said, in verse 27, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all of the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, these guys, these followers of Jesus, they were devout Jews. They were devout in their studies of the scripture. They knew the Old Testament inside now. And what Jesus does is he comes alongside of them and he basically says, I'm going to give you an exposition of Old Testament scripture. I'm going to show you that what has happened in Jerusalem was all part of God's eternal plan through the scripture, through the Old Testament. You see, God corrects our heart and mind with the power of the Scripture. The Word of God is our absolute path of truth. It is our path of behavior, our path of thinking. It is our path of direction. May I say to you, the only authority that we have in life, the only anchor of we know what is right in life is the Bible, God's Word. Let it be a lamp to your feet. Let it be a light to your life. Let the word of God be the basis of what is right and what is wrong. Take human opinion and throw it out the window and just stand on what God says, no matter what you feel or what your emotions are trying to dictate to you. We are Bible believers that are anchored to the truth of God's word. May I say we should never underestimate the power of God's word. The devil will come to you and say the Bible cannot be understood. The devil will come to you and say the Bible's outdated. It's a, it's a book written by a bunch of old men that lived in ancient years. But I tell you today, the Bible says it is God-breathed. It is a love letter that God wrote to you even in the 21st century. So you might know the mind and the heart of God. And in your storm, you'll have a of direction because you're principled by the scriptures and not be navigated by your emotions. Jesus walks alongside of these guys and says, what you guys need is a good Bible lesson. And that seven miles of walking with Jesus, they had no idea that this man who was walking by their side was expounding the message of Moses. He began to explain to him, do you know that place in Genesis where it says, the crushing of the head of the serpent, a serpent bruised the head or the heel of the Messiah? Don't you know that the kingdom of Satan was crushed when Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished. It bruised the heel of Jesus, but it crushed the head of the devil. And I'm here to tell you today, the Bible says the devil has been defanged, dehorned, declawed, and he's going to hell. And Jesus is going to rule and reign forever. He is the only king. He is the Lord of glory. He's the one that opens the door of eternal life. All men who come to him receive forgiveness and birth into the kingdom of God. Give the Lord a hand of glory. 
Jesus expounds the beautiful truths from the Old Testament. The sacrifice of Abraham giving his only begotten son on Mount Moriah. Abraham and Isaac. A picture, Abraham and Isaac. Jesus said, that's what my father did for me. He laid me down upon a cross so that I might give life to all mankind. The lamb over the door during Passover in Egypt. He says, you guys know all about Passover. That's a Jewish tradition. And I am the blood that causes all men to receive the absolution of God, the total forgiveness of God. When God sees the blood over the mantle of the heart, he passes over you. You no longer stand in judgment. You no longer stand in the way of eternal hell. But when he sees the blood of Jesus sprinkled over your soul, he sees you delivered, birthed, saved, safe, forever in the hands of God. He began to teach them about escaping death. Remember the plague of serpents. And Jesus pointed out that Moses raised up a pole like a cross. And he put a serpent on top of that pole. And then he said, so as this pole is raised to save the lives of men, so I will be lifted up on a cross so I might save all men. Then he took them through the suffering uh, servant of Jesus in the passages of Isaiah and revealed that everything that just happened these past three days in Jerusalem, all of these are Old Testament prophecies that have been fulfilled. What Jesus Christ was saying to these two guys, Jesus had to die in order that he could be the supreme sacrifice so he could redeem all of fallen man back to himself. He said it must, ought to happen in order for man to have hope. That's what Jesus shared with them. You see, the problem with the disciples was how to make sense of the cross, how to accept it. And Jesus helped them to do that by showing them that the cross in itself was the creative act of God. You're saying, wait a minute, do you mean, are you telling me that God designed the cross, the death of Jesus on the cross, as a means to get sinful man into heaven? You bet he did. That was God's plan. God used Judas Iscariot to be used as a vessel to put him in the hands of sinners so he could be crucified. It was God's plan all along. It was Jesus Christ submitting himself to the Father's will that he would be crushed, that he would, be, that he would pay the full price of all of man's sin, past, present, and future, that he would be the supreme sacrifice to save the souls of all men. And for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The supreme fountain was opened up 2,000 years ago. Jesus fulfilled the will of his Father. The cross was a fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecies and what this unseen traveler was telling these two guys, the purpose of the cross is so that you can get to heaven. <laughs> the cross of shame and suffering has now become the cross of redemption. When Jesus intrudes into our lives, our probing thoughts, it is for the purpose to bless us. But do we, like Emmaus, 
the men from Emmaus, welcome his initiative. Jesus even gave them a pretty hard rebuke. He says, then Jesus said to, to these two guys, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scripture. He says, you've got selective reading. You read what you want to read, but you missed all about the sufferings that the servant would have to pay in order to redeem mankind. The Bible says, when they finally got to Emmaus, <laughs> they got home, the end of the seven-mile trip, the longest sermon ever preached to just two people. Got one of the most profound exposition of Old Testament preaching. Jesus preached just to two men. Just to two men. And as they listened to this unseen traveler, they were like, wow, we had no idea that what just happened in Jerusalem was ordained of God. And when they finally got to the town, the two, Jesus said, well, I got to keep going. Good talking to you guys. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. So there's something powerful about the presence of Jesus. You never want it to leave you. They said, no, no, don't leave us. They didn't even understand who he was. They just knew one thing, that there was comfort from this one traveler. Come, come home with us. Spend the night with us. We want to sit up all night and hear what you got to say. We like what you got to say. You bring understanding in our pain and our suffering. There's something about hanging with Jesus, my friend, that'll help you. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Jesus said, well, I need to get going. No, 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 no. Come home with us. We'll give you some food. We want to keep this conversation going. And they sat around the table and they took him in the house. And Jesus took the bread. The Bible says he broke the bread. And they're like, well, I've seen this before. And he gave them, he blessed it and gave them the spread. And the men, as soon as they received the bread, God opened their eyes. And it was Jesus. He was the resurrected Christ. The one who had been standing by their side, that unseen visitor, was Jesus all along. And they probably thought to themselves, oh my gosh, we said all the wrong things. We were talking about how we didn't have faith and we lost hope. But it was Jesus and he didn't rebuke us, but rather he loved us. He gave us the word. He brought everything in perspective. As they looked, they saw the brilliant eyes of the loving Savior. Jesus smiled, I can only imagine. They were shocked. We just saw you crucified on Friday, and here you're sitting talking to us. We're nobodies. We're not a disciple. Let me tell you something. You're not a nobody to Jesus. He cares what you feel. The world might look at you and say, irrelevant, insignificant. God looks at you and says, I love you. 
I created you. He wants you to open your heart to him and receive him. When they took the bread, he revealed himself in all of his Shekinah glory, and the Bible says he disappeared. The men who just made that trip, the men who just made that trip from Jerusalem, the Bible says within an hour, they repacked their bags. Get this. It was probably late at night. They were so excited to be in the presence of Jesus. They were so excited to receive probably one of the most profound sermons. Just the two old nobodies. They said, we're going to go back to Jerusalem. And that very night, the Bible says, they went back, but they didn't walk. They ran. And they ran. They tore into the room where the disciples were sleeping. And they said, guess what? This story about Jesus and his body being stolen and him rising from the grave, it's true. (laughs) We saw the Lord. We saw him. And we can preach you a sermon that will knock you over. We know why he died. To God be the glory. They were restored. Seven miles. His unseen presence, his presence lifted them, comforted them. His loving patience, he allowed us to vent. He allowed us to get out of our humanness, how we doubt and we're scared and we don't know. He comes alongside of us and says, Get it out. And then he restores us with a word. It infuses life into us. It infuses hope into us. And then he reveals himself. He reveals himself. And we run away and say to others, I have seen the Lord. Soon, we're going to see him in all of his glory. We'll see him in his Shekinah glory. We'll be able to touch him, put our hands in the nail prints, put our hand in the side like Thomas. Most of all, we'll feel his warm embrace. We'll hear that voice, well done. How good and faithful servant. I'm so glad that when I'm broken down, he comes to my side. He's patient with my craziness and that he infuses his word in me and he restores me. Like David said, in the valley, he restoreth my soul. We need to love him. Draw near to him and he'll draw near to you. You have someone by your side this morning. It's not the person sitting next to you. I was driving to work this morning, driving to church. Called it work. It was work. 
I need this chair. I was driving. Y'all don't mind if I just share this one thing with you. I was driving this morning to church. And uh, I was thinking about this story. And I looked at the passenger side. It was empty. And I said, thank you, Jesus. I know you're there. I know you're there. I said, Lord, I'm going to stand in front of several hundred people this morning. I'm just a sinner saved by, I'm just a paper boy, sinner saved by grace. Jesus, I need you to help me this morning. Speak to your people. I was sitting at the red light thinking about the day. It's as if the Lord said, I will speak to them. You just do your part. I'll speak to them. The Lord is even impressing my heart to tell you he's right next to you. He's listening to you. He hears you. He's weeping with you. He understands you. And he loves you. Don't leave this building without knowing that he loves you. Before he created the world, he was full of love for you. Before you were born, he loved you. And he loves you. And you might think he doesn't care and he's far and remote, far from you. You're so wrong because the Bible says he knows how many hairs upon your head. He knows the burden that you have in your heart. He knows about what you're concerned about, what you're worried about, what your angst. He knows it. He's going to be your unseen traveler. He's with you. He's patient with you. But he wants to infuse the word into you because he wants you to have hope. This morning, if you're here, and you know about God, and you know about Jesus, you know about the Easter story, this morning, I want you to do something. I want you to push the door of your heart open this morning and say, Lord, I want you to come into my heart. With head bowed and eyes are closed, I want you to say this prayer with me. I want you to mean it because Jesus is sitting right next to you. Tell him in your heart. He can read your heart. He can read your mind. He knows your thoughts before it even comes to your mind. He knows. He's God. I want you to pray this prayer, dear Lord Jesus. I love you, Jesus. And I'm ashamed of myself and the sin in my life. And Jesus, with the blood from your cross, will you wash me right now of all of my sins? All the bad words that I've said, forgive me. All the bad thoughts that I've thought, forgive me. Times when I've doubted you, forgive me. Jesus, walk with me. Manifest yourself to me. Reveal yourself to me. God, 
May you stay with me till I take my last breath in this earth. I receive you right now. I receive you right now into my heart. I welcome you, Lord Jesus, into my heart and life. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it, I invited Jesus into my heart. Would you simply raise your hand with my hand raised, hands all over. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. May I say to you, the moment you prayed that prayer, he came in. He forgave you of your sins. They're gone. They're in the deepest sea. You are cleansed. You are clean. You are holy. You are a child of God on your way to heaven. And if you're here and you're saved, just give the Lord a hand of praise for the 15 people that got birthed in the kingdom of God. Hallelujah, Jesus. Glory to God. Let the church praise his name. Give him glory in his house. Oh, the Lord is good. God bless you. God bless you. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Man, that brother can preach. Woo. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, perhaps when you first came in, maybe you had some of, that, some of that guilt and stuff hanging on to you. Well, it ought to be gone by now. So listen, when we sing about the famous one this time, if there was any doubt in your mind that Jesus, my Redeemer, and yours was the famous one, it should all be gone. Let's all stand together and sing.
worshiping with you today. We'll see you next Sunday. So helpless Where did the light go? I had no hope left